me to your study outlines, and as you're turning, let me welcome those of you that are joining us online, and also our friends in Arco, Idaho, and also at the Hangar in Montana, and also at Purpose Church Rancho Cucamonga. We are so glad uh, that you are joining us for our study. And as you're turning, let me introduce you to the newest member of the Gunderson family. This is uh, Emily Sophia Gunderson. Uh, great story. Yeah, she's, she's beautiful. She, uh, um, you know, we're in this time period where we had three of our kids get married last year in a five-month period, and now we have three grandchildren in a six-month period. We are just reigning grandchildren in the Gunnarsson family. And a uh, great story behind this little girl here is, you know, our son John, we adopted him when he was eight years old from an orphanage in, in Colombia, South America. And then he was in Bible school in Lima, Peru, and met uh, Natalia, who is a doctor in Peru. They met at the church there when he was in Bible school in Peru, and now they, have, they got married last year. And now they got little Emily, and so we are very, very uh, happy about that. Now, we've been doing a series called Explore God. And the question we're going to answer today is, or deal with, is, is the Bible reliable? 2 Timothy chapter 3, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Psalm 119 says, I will praise you with an upright heart as I learn your righteous laws. I will obey your decrees. Do not utterly forsake me. How can a young person stay on the path of purity by living according to your word? I seek you with all my heart. Do not let me stray from your commands. I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Praise be to you, Lord. Teach me your decrees. With my lips, I recount all the laws that come from your mouth. I rejoice in following your statutes as one rejoices in great riches. I meditate on your precepts and consider your ways. I delight in your decrees. I will not neglect your word. You know, one of the things that the word commands us, if you're a follower of Jesus, is to be baptized. And, you know, at the end of this service, we have uh, some people scheduled to, to be baptized. But then I want to give you an opportunity. Maybe you're not here by accident right now. This is a divine appointment. You consider yourself a follower of Jesus, but you've never been baptized, okay? And, and maybe today is your day. At the end of the 11-11 service, we're going to do the same thing. We're after the service, after my sermon, we're going to have a praise song, and then people are going to be baptized. But we will open it up to anybody that wants to be baptized. And maybe God's just calling you to do that uh, today. Maybe you live close enough that you can whip home after this service and be back. The end of the message is about 1215. Uh, 12.15 is about when I'm wrapping up my message at the 11-11 service. Come back by 12.15 with a change of clothes, or we have a change of clothes for you here, or every Everybody in the Bible that got baptized went home wet. And maybe you live, you know, and it's far away. You're, you know, from Barstow or something like that, and you drove in today. Just go home wet. Everybody in the Bible, it'll be more biblical if you go home wet. They didn't have robes and hair dryers and changing rooms back then. They just went home wet. But maybe it's not an accident that you're here. And after, at the end of the 11-11 service, I'm going to open up if you want it more privately. We close the doors after the service is over. And, you know, just about every baptism in the book of Acts, there was only one or or two people there. It doesn't have to be hundreds of people there. It can be a couple of people there. So we can, we're going to close the doors at the end, and then we'll proceed with anybody that wants to be baptized in, in just a couple of people in a low-key way, uh, more semi-privately. And so I'm just, maybe it's not an accident. You're here. I will not neglect your word. And maybe you've been neglecting that command from God's word, and today is your day to make that thing right. The Bible is remarkable. It's unique in its circulation. 
It is without question the single most published book in the history of the world. It's been read by more people and published in more languages than any other book. Billions have been printed and tens of millions continue to be sold and circulated year after year. Find another book that has stayed on top of the bestseller list for 300 years. The Bible has been the number one bestseller in the world every year, basically since the creation, the invention of the printing press. I mean, you say a book is doing great if it's on the bestseller list for three or four months. The Bible's been there for centuries and centuries. Basically, it's been the number one bestseller from the very beginning. It's unique in its circulation. Number two, the Bible is unique in its translation. Single most translated book in the world. Even though it's been translated in over 1,200 languages already, a literal army of full-time translators is working today to make it available to still more people groups. It's unique in its durability. For all the people are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever, and this is the word that was preached to you. It has survived bans and burnings, ridicule and criticism. Countless kings and rulers have tried to eradicate it, but it lives on, and its influence continues to spread. Thousands of Bibles continue to pour into Eastern Bloc countries, even when it was communist, the Middle East and communist China. The Bible has outlived every one of its cruelest opponents. One of my favorite examples is Voltaire was kind of the most prominent atheist of the 1700s, kind of the Richard Dawkins or the Madeleine Murray O'Hare of his time. And he said, he predicted that in a hundred years after his time, Christianity would be swept from existence and passed into history. 50 years after his death, the Geneva Bible Society used his personal printing press and began printing Bibles in his house. <laughs> the Bible's unique in its impact. Hebrews 4, for the word of God is active and alive, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Uh, this next one there, I can't believe the pastor puts the print so small in your Bible. And uh, you know what? I actually was so vain. You know, I'm so vain. I've never used my glasses. And I brought them with me at 8.30, but I forgot them at 9.45. So we're just going to read it right now, okay? Uh, pastor Jay, would you hold this over there? And I'll, I'll read it. Uh, the Jesus of Nazareth. This is historian Philip Schaff. Without money and arms, conquered more millions than Alexander, Caesar, Muhammad, and Napoleon. Without science and learning, he shed more light on things human and divine than all philosophers and scholars combined. Without the eloquence of schools, he spoke such words of life as were never spoken before or since, and produced effects which lie beyond the reach of orator or poet. Without writing a single line, he set more pens in motion and furnished themes for more sermons, orations, discussions, learned volumes, works of art, and songs of praise than the whole army of great men of ancient and modern times. It is unique in its impact. We know that especially uh, within our nation. We have uh, benefited from the impact of, of God's word. Uh, political scientists at the University of Houston they were endeavoring to discover where in the world the founders of our country, the founding fathers and mothers, where do they get their radical ideas, which were radical at the time, in some ways still are, for this entirely new form of government. They believed they could discover the answer by they collected and cataloged all the quotes of the founders of the country. And they collected over like a 10-year period about 15,000 of these quotes, and they made notes as to who they were quoting. They found that the three most quoted men were Montesquieu, Blackstone, and John Locke. 
But what surprised them was that the Bible was quoted four times more than Montesquieu. It was quoted six times more than John Locke, and it was quoted 12 times more than Blackstone. In fact, when they began to run the numbers, they found that 34% of all the founders' quotes came straight from the Bible, over a third of them. Think about that. A third of every single quote of 15,000 documents of the founders were quoting uh, from the Bible. And that's why they saw it as so important. They established Bible societies like the American Bible Society, the American Tract Society, the Philadelphia Bible Society. Now, why did they do that? Is David Moore writing. Because they knew what the Scripture said and they believed what they claimed. They believed that if the Scriptures could be woven into the fabric of the government, that they would, in a very real sense, bring the power and the blessings of the insights of God because they knew that God's Word has an impact. With divine assistance and God being invited into the process every single day, they produced the most radical, insightful document in the history of the world, which is our Constitution. And woven all through it are principles from the Scripture. Did you know that the brand new idea of three branches of government comes from Isaiah chapter 33? The whole new idea of separation of powers came from Jeremiah chapter 17. The whole new concept of taxes and churches came from Ezra chapter 7. This kind of thinking wasn't new. It was found in the pages of God's Word. Um, the Bible is unique in its composition. Now, we, we kind of take this for granted, what a miracle this is. But when you write a book with 40 different people over a 1,500-year period, it's just bound to have errors and contradictions. I mean, you think of the writings of Confucius, written during one lifetime. He sits down and he composes this. Same with Buddha. Same with Joseph Smith. Um, uh, and yet, you even have a book like the Koran, written by one person, Muhammad, but he wrote the first part of it from Mecca and the second part of it from Medina. And it's like two different books that completely contradict each other and are filled with all kinds of contradictions. And it was still written by just one person. So how in the world could a, a, could a book hold together that was written over a 1,500-year span? It was written over 40 generations. It was written by over 40 different authors from every walk of life with different worldviews. Let me ask you a question. If you want to find out what was going on in the Middle East, would you have a different worldview if you watched Fox News as opposed to Al Jazeera? You know? Be totally different. Al Jazeera, Fox News. You'd have two different, entirely different worldviews about the same events going on. It was written by over 40 different authors with different worldviews. Number four, it was written in different places. Next page of your study outline. It was written at different times, written during different moods. Number seven, it was written on three different continents, Asia, Africa, and Europe. It was written in three languages, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. The Bible was written over a 1,500-year time span by 40 different generations coming from radically different backgrounds and cultures. It was written from different places at different times and different languages by writers on different continents, yet it contains an unmistakable thread of continuity throughout its pages. And I would offer up, that's because it didn't have 40 authors, it had one author. And it was God speaking through uh, these 40 uh, different writers. It contains no contradictions and no errors within its, its pages. And, and I always say that if you come across what you think is a surface error or contradiction in the Scripture, you do one of two things. You either dig deeper or you just wait. And eventually, 
it'll be validated. Let me give you an example of how this has worked in the past and will continue to be worked out in our day and in, into the future. French Institute in the, 19, in the 1800s found 82 errors in the Bible. Since that time, archaeology, archaeological and historical discoveries have eliminated all 82. Any surface errors, the surface errors, just dig deeper or wait. Let, let me give you some examples. And the little phrase I want you to have running through your mind is, that's what they used to say. Okay? That's what critics of the Bible used to say. And boy, by the way, no book has been so dissected. No book has been so vetted. No book has been so criticized. No book has been so torn to shreds looking for any little inconsistency. Okay? If this were a political candidate, it would be the perfect one because it has got nothing in its pages of contradictions or, or of errors. Here's what they used to say. They used to say James, the brother of Jesus, wasn't a real person. Then archaeologists found his tomb with his name on it, dated from the time period of Jesus. They used to say there was no Hittite nation. They would mock the Bible. For there being such a thing, there was no archaeological evidence. Then vast archaeological evidence was discovered for the Hittite nation. They used to say Belshazzar, king of Babylon, uh, famous for the story of the handwriting on the wall, was not an historical figure until they found this thing called the Nabonidus Chronicle in which he is listed. They used to say there were no Hebrew slaves in Egypt until they found a list of Hebrew slaves of an Egyptian nobleman with names like Jacob, Issachar, Asher, Joseph, and Job. Okay? Not good Egyptian names, good Jewish boy names. Okay? They used to say Moses couldn't have written the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, okay? Uh, why? Because writing wasn't invented in 1400 B.C. when Moses would have written them. Now they've discovered evidence of writing was invented. They found evidence from 2000 B.C. and beyond, okay? That's what they used to say. Um, they used to say the walls of Jericho couldn't have fallen outward like the Bible said. Everybody knows when you attack a city, you tear the walls down inward until they did excavations of Jericho and found indeed, just like the Bible, they had fallen outward instead of inward. They used to say Solomon's kingdom was exaggerated until they found horse stables of his all over the place with incredible technology. They used to say King Nebuchadnezzar was not an historical figure until a Babylonian tablet archaeologists discovered in Iraq was found with his name and his accomplishments written on it. They used to say that there's no evidence of the Jewish people being released by Cyrus, king of Persia, until this thing called the Cyrus Cylinder was discovered and that event was listed on it. They used to say the Assyrian king Sargon, mentioned in Isaiah 20, was not an historical figure until they found a massive monument to Sargon in the nation of what is today Iraq. They used to say Isaiah couldn't have been written when it was, they said it was written because Isaiah 53 so clearly describes Roman crucifixion, which wasn't invented until 50 to 100 B.C. Then the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered with a copy of Isaiah from 250 B.C. Same thing is true with the book of Daniel. They used to say Daniel couldn't be prophecy. It had to be history. It was so specific. It must have been somebody writing after the event rather than prophesying the event until again with the discovery of uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls and a copy of the book of Isaiah that was blown right out of the water. You know, uh, Ken Otto, um, so I always say the best sermon I write is the one driving home afterwards because I get input from you guys throughout the morning. People say, well, what about this? You should have mentioned this, should have mentioned that. And I always drive home saying, Lord, give me one more chance, you know, uh, because you guys give me such great input. And Ken Otto, who's the librarian over here at Azusa Pacific, 
APU has five fragments of the Dead Sea Scroll. He says, Glenn, if you'd let me know, I would have brought him over for this morning for everybody to walk by in the lobby. I'm like, no, you know, but I'll find another opportunity to do that. I said to him, would you let us handle them and stuff? And no, I'm just kidding. He, he says he keeps them in a dark room and only pulls them out for special occasions. Um, they, they used to say the census. There was no census that brought Mary and Joseph to Bethlehem. That was a myth. Until a few years ago, archaeologists discovered in Egypt in mummified crocodiles. You know, I understand wanting food in the afterlife, but who wants their pet crocodile? I, you know, they were mummified with papyrus from Egyptian government records. Ha, ah, they knew even back then, what do you do with the government records? You use them to mummify crocodiles. Um, one, of these, one of these records talked about a worldwide census during the time of Christ where it was required for people to go back to their ancestral towns to be counted. They used to say David and Jeremiah were not historical figures until evidence emerged in favor of that. They used to say Caiaphas, the high priest at the trial of Jesus, was not a real person until just a few years ago they found his casket with his name on it, Caiaphas, the high priest in Jerusalem, dated from the time of Christ. That's what they used to say. William Ramsey, archaeological scholar, Uh, set out to go to the Middle East to prove that the Bible was full of historical errors. He was an atheist, and he wanted to write a book disproving the Bible. But after years of research, he came to this conclusion. I am amazed to find the Bible completely trustworthy in every historical and geographical detail. Nelson Gleck, who was the renowned Jewish archaeologist, said, it may be stated categorically that no archaeological discovery has ever contradicted or controverted a biblical reference. That led Dr. Clark Pinnock to say, an honest person cannot dismiss a source of this kind. Skepticism regarding the historical credentials of Christianity is based upon an irrational, anti-supernatural bias. Let's watch this. So I think, I think it's important to understand the way the Bible holds together. This is one book, but it's really a compilation of of 66 books, right? Written by over 40 authors over like 1600 years. And I, I think what puts the pieces of the Bible together for me is that really all of those, uh, 66 books are, are telling one story. The fact that we have this, this one book that is written over such a long period of time by so many different people and ultimately it all connects and points to Jesus. That's brought me a huge amount of um, comfort in it because that's just impossible. I mean, it, it's, it's impossible for to, you to make a, a book work like that. What started convincing me, it was a little by little process. You know, like it mentioned cities, it mentioned names, it mentions. Uh, you know, it, it's it, it's talking that it's history, and so a big thing for me was to say, like, all right, is this mythical or are these places real? And so then I started looking into the historicity of the scriptures, because you can go to other religious documents and they can't find that. As I was comparing a bunch, then a big question was also, you know, like I, I assumed that it was so far from what was originally written, because how did they? You know, how do we have today what was about you know, thousands and thousands of years old? And there's, I found there's a, a few scholars who they go and study how did the Bible get translated into the English 
version that I read today. And the more I studied this, and that's what I was kind of very overwhelmed with, because the more I studied it, a lot of my thoughts of why I didn't want to believe it was from God, I began finding there's plenty of evidence to believe that it is trustworthy. Most amazingly, the people of Israel end up uh, in exile in Babylon. And you would think that would be the end of Israel because every other people that was conquered by Babylon just sort of, you know, they were conquered, they were assimilated. Uh, We don't have any records uh, of those nations. And yet, at the moment when this empire has taken over uh, the people of Israel, these prophets arise and they say, God has, has not forgotten you. God has not forgotten his people. And they, they give this picture of what's going to happen. Israel's going to return to the land. Uh, and in the land, God is going to meet his people. And then Jesus of Nazareth appears and his cousin, John the Baptist, says, you know, those prophecies from hundreds of years ago are being fulfilled now in this person. And the idea that this all connects, that the, that the prophecies of Jeremiah and Ezekiel in the 500s, 600s before the Common Era connect to what happens in Galilee uh, in zero of the Common Era, and that that connects to what happens in the church uh, 50 and 100 years later, it's just amazing. I was dyslexic as a kid, and... Um... I'd never read a book in my life. My religious education teacher in school, she, she lent me a Bible. And I'd never attempted to read a book from cover to cover. I'd kind of compensated for, for dyslexia. And um, as I read the Bible, I felt as though I was encountering someone who really I, I kind of knew already. If there was anything mystical about Christianity, it's in that moment where something kicks on in me, something turns on where I read something about God and it brings me joy and comfort and delight, or I read something that talks about what I'm like and it sings and it stings at the same time. You know, it's referencing the history of people and how they lived their lives. And that's so applicable today, you know. One generation passing on stuff to the next generation and the consequences of that. There's a a famous philosopher, his name is Alistair McIntyre. And he once said this. I love this quote. He says, um, the only way that I could ever answer the question, what am I supposed to do, is if I can answer the prior question, what story am I a part of? And, you know, I think that's what the Bible is ultimately offering. It's offering a story. It's offering a better story, a story to help make sense of of, of our crazy human existence. I mean, all, all of us are living in some story. Just like Jesus, when people met him, they actually had very strong reactions to him. Um, I think the Bible produces that. It, it, it's, you just can't be as neutral about it as you can be even about other ancient religious texts. There's something about it that addresses us and kind of pushes us um, to decide what we're going to do with it. Bible is the only religious or philosophical work 
that basically says, test me objectively. You see, all the other works, like, you know, Confucius writes certain things, Buddha writes certain things, and you're just left to say, I either agree with that or I don't. There's no way to test it. He has some ideas, and, and, and some are good, and I connect with them, and so basically I'm the judge of whether I like this work or not. Uh, there's no way to test whether it's really true or not. And yet you have the Bible that is just filled with history. We forget that these other works hardly have any history. It's been said that even a book like the Koran that you think of would have more history. There's more history in one chapter of the book of Genesis than there is in the entire Koran. Or when it does have history, like the Book of Mormon, it's wrong like 100% of the time. You can demonstrate. You can go to all the places the Book of Mormon talks about. You can do an archaeological dig, and you come up empty every single time. When it is tested, it fails every single time. But then you come to the Bible that have tens of thousands of historical details, prophetic details, and you can test, does the prophecy come true? You can test, did this really happen historically? You can test, did this happen archaeologically? And basically what the Bible says is, test me in that which you can objectively test me, and that'll lead you to take by faith that which you cannot test. Like, how do you get right with God? How do you go to heaven? Okay, how, how, do you, how do you have something reliable? Well, you find it reliable in all these other areas, and if you find somebody to be truthful in all the areas that you can test them, you by faith are trust them to be truthful in the areas where it is more subjective and you have to make a step of faith. Only the Bible says to test me. Now, let's just do another couple of questions and then we're done. Uh, are the Old Testament documents historically reliable? The Old Testament was completed about 400 B.C., from 400 B.C. to today is 2,400 years since they didn't have copy machines, computers, and assistants like mine, Bev Mowdy, and others. It makes sense to think that in those 2,400 years, certainly there would be all kinds of mistakes and errors. You would expect it, wouldn't you? Over 2,400 years, if you're copying this by hand, one copy at a time, don't you think you would expect there to be massive errors? It's kind of like, have you ever played the party game, the gossip game, or the whisper game? We have 20 people in a circle, and you start by whispering in somebody's ear something like, it is elegant to stroll under the moon. And it goes through 20 people, and it comes out, elephants like to bowl before noon. That's how it comes out. Okay, you've played that game. And so you would expect that to be the case. But the Old Testament was copied with such precision that when an entire scroll had been copied by hand one letter at a time, if one mistake was made, the scroll would be destroyed. Uh, these Jewish copyists, you think your job is lousy. How about them? They would spend their whole lives producing maybe two copies of the Bible. Have you ever lost a day's work when your computer crashes? Okay. How would you like to lose 25 years worth of work because you got sleepy and you put an A instead of an I? Ah, throw it away. That would get old really fast, I'm telling you. I get tired of that. In addition, the Jewish copyists of the Hebrew Scriptures adhered to detailed requirements in copying. And you, you can read those on your own. But the bottom left-hand corner, the sixth bullet point there, let me just read that one. Every letter of every page and book was counted and compared against the original. The number of times each letter of the alphabet occurred in a book was counted and compared against the original. The middle letter of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament, and the middle letter of the entire Hebrew Bible were computed and indicated in the text. If one of these calculations was incorrect, they took the entire scroll, destroyed it, and started again. Now, I want you to know, I just put the next line is the stupidest thing I've ever put in an outline. These people had a lot of spare time. That is so dumb. We need, we need to thank these people 
We, when we get to heaven, we need to say thank you, Mr. Monk with a boring life who, uh, who sat up in the top of a monastery for four, 50 years. Because they, 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 didn't, they didn't have spare time. It's because they invested their time in something that would last for eternity. These are the most purposeful people I know. We have people who devoted their entire life to producing a couple of perfect, flawless copies. Now, you got a chance to check their work. You ever have in your textbook, like you do math problems, and you remember how they used to have the, the answers in the back, and there would be the odds or the evens they would give to you, and you'd look back to see if you're on the right track. You can check your work, and you'd see if you're kind of getting it, and you would check your work in the back of the book. Well, we had a chance to do this. In 1947, with the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls, we could jump back a whole thousand years, okay? That is, with the Dead Sea Scrolls, we jumped back a whole millennium, a, a thousand years before our earliest copy, we went back a thousand years. So you could literally check the work of a thousand years worth of these copyists. And it was staggering how error-free they were. It was just amazing how they got it right 99.9999% of the time. And when you did find a little mistake, you could trace it back and find where the mistake was made. Uh, some sleepy monk at 11 o'clock on a, you know, a night. He, 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 and then you can, you can follow that, and there's this whole thing called textual criticism in which there's a science when you can figure out what the original was based on where the trail comes from the tiny little error there might be. Now here's another question. Are the New Testament documents historically reliable? The answer, the Bible has no equal with respect to manuscript documentation. Uh, You just see that little box there. Let me just do a couple of them. The first and the last. Plato, uh, written between 427 and 347 B.C. Earliest copies are from 900 A.D. That means there's a time span of 1,200 years between when Plato wrote his works and the earliest copy we have, and we only have seven copies. Aristotle wrote it around 384 to 322 B.C. Earliest copy is from 1100 A.D. That is, there's a 1,400-year gap between when he wrote it and the earliest copy we have, and we only have five copies. Now you come to the New Testament. Written between 40 and 100 A.D., we have earliest copies are from 125 A.D., and we have fragments from even earlier than that. A time span of only 25 years, and we have over 24,000 copies. Nobody would ever, when they teach Plato, doubt that uh, what he wrote, the vast majority of it was exactly what we're reading in our textbook is is 99.9% what he actually wrote. Nobody doubt that. And yet look at how much more evidence we have that the Bible we have in our hands is exactly uh, the way it was was written. Um, Another example of this, they discovered a mummy in Egypt uh, it was from 98 AD and had his head wrapped in papyrus and a part of it was, the papyrus was written, John chapter 18, uh, the uh, arrest and trial of Jesus. If you want to die, get wrapped in the trial of Jesus. I'd, I'd prefer the resurrection, actually, is what I'd like to be wrapped in. But at any rate, they found a fragment of John chapter 18. We believe that John may have been written as late as 90 AD, only an eight-year gap, and a little bit longer if John was written before 90 AD. Sir Frederick Kenyon, a world-renowned scholar of the ancient manuscripts, wrote this, The interval then between the dates of original composition and the earliest extant evidence becomes so small as to be in fact negligible, 
and the last foundation for any doubt that the scriptures have come down to us substantially as they were written has now been removed. Both the authenticity and the general integrity of the books of the New Testament may be regarded as finally established. Now, why does it matter? It matters because if when you can test it, you find it without error. When it gets to something like Jesus saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life, nobody comes to the Father except through me. You can trust him in that as well. Um, when you fly, maybe I'm the only person that has this thought, and, and I'm not really afraid of flying. But even though I'm not really afraid of flying, I always think about this when I get onto a plane. And I don't know if you're this. That moment when you step from the ramp into the plane. Do you guys ever note that moment when you got on? I always look at the outside of the plane. And I pray, Lord, I pray that this is not on the news tonight. <laughs> Mangled, burnt. I'd prefer that it stay intact. After all, I am flying. I'm about to step onto a tube that's going to go 30,000 feet in the air over 600 miles per hour. I just, I just, and I'm not, I'm not afraid of it, but I just think to myself, I am entrusting myself to this plane. Now, I mean, you don't do research, but through experience, the thing is, the reason I'm not, I'm, I'm pretty confident in doing that is because I've had enough experience and read enough about the airlines and know other people's experience to know that air travel is extremely safe. But there still is a step of faith. It's a reasonable step of faith. It's a reliable step of faith. But nonetheless, all that you've tested now goes to the test. Will I take that step? And that's the way it is with Jesus. You can test it. It's reliable. It's, it, it makes sense to make that step of faith. But ultimately, it becomes a step of faith. And that's what we're going to see in a few minutes, these people that are getting baptized. We can have the praise band come up right now. And... And they are going to say by being baptized, they're going to be obedient to God's word. They're not going to neglect his word. They're going to be obedient to it. He says, if anybody wants to follow after me, um, they show it publicly by being baptized. This is what Jesus told us to do 2,000 years ago, and we've been doing it for 2,000 years. So what we're going to do now is we're going to stand, sing a worship song as we do. Those of you that are being baptized, uh, uh, that we're planning on it, come on to the, one of these two doors, and it's up on the third floor right back there. We'll sit back down, we'll see some baptisms, and then we'll head on out. But you know what? If as you watch these people get baptized, and as you've studied God's Word today, if you say, you know what? It's crazy, Glenn, that I show up today. It's not crazy. It's God's appointment for you. It's not an accident. And I'd encourage you that God may be stirring in your heart and say, I want you to take this step as well. I want you to, baptism is like stepping into the airplane. It's trusting in Jesus, okay? And, and if you got a chance, run home, get some clothes. If you live far away, we got clothes for you. You don't want to use those because that like freaks you out or something to use clothes that we give to you. They're, they're new. I mean, nobody's like worn them and stuff like that. But uh, go home wet. But do it. Don't neglect God's word. Do what it says because it's reliable and you can base your life on it. Okay? So let's stand together and those who are being baptized that were scheduled.